Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, movie treepers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Hannah Strong. And I'm Meg Walters. On the show this week, Keanu returns for John Wick Chapter 4. Brandon Cronenberg crafts a holiday from hell in Infinity Pool and Marina Asciotti speaks to Mia Goth. The horrors continue as a gifted young girl's aunt returns to wreak havoc in The Five Devils. And on Film Club, it's another nightmarish holiday in 1971's Wake and Fright. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Welcome, welcome, Meg. Very nice to have you on for the first time. Hello, I'm happy to be here. So can you, for listeners, explain a little bit of who you are and what it is you do? Sure. So I'm Meg. I'm a freelance culture writer and critic based in London. I'm originally from Canada, as you might be able to tell from my accent. I cover film and TV for a bunch of different publications, including a couple pieces so far for Little White Lies. And yeah, my sort of focus and interest area, I love sort of an old classic film, love a rom-com and understated drama. So this week of sort of action and horror has been a fun one for me. Hopefully can offer like an interesting perspective. <laughs> I mean, aside from maybe a few moments in The Five Devils, I don't think we have a single understated moment in the, <laughs> in the fourth movies that we're going to cover. But, you know, subtlety is not always everything, I suppose. <laughs> but as well as a new guest, we have a new issue, which is about to be announced in our timeline, but for the list's timeline has already happened. Well done, Hannah. Issue number 98 is shooting its way to subscribers now. Yeah, 98. We're so close to 100. It, it's it's kind of crazy. I think I joined at 70. I think Three Billboards was my first one. Can't remember which number that was, but kind of mad. So the, and this one we're, we're super excited about because it's a feature debut. Not often we get to do one of those on the cover. It was something that I saw at Sundance and loved and was very kind of happy when it just sort of worked out that we got to do it. So it feels like I'm building up to like a, to, to announcing it. Listeners may have seen already because we'll, we will have announced it on Twitter by the time you're listening to this. But uh, it is Nida Manzor's Polite Society, which is a delightful coming of age film about a teenage aspiring stunt woman who attempts to save her sister from the the patriarchy basically (laughs) it's kind of hard to hard to sum up really because there's so many things going on in it but it is just a a really funny film but incredibly imaginative and kind of in the same vein as scott pilgrim in terms of this kind of like action comedy style and yeah we we all fell in love with it a little white lies and we're very excited to have done this kind of whole issue celebrating it. 
I know that you and I were talking about the young actress who's the star in Polite Society. You've got a big interview with her. She's a star. I don't know what a star is, but she, whatever it is, she's got it. Yeah, so uh, Priya Kansara, I had the pleasure of speaking to her just after Sundance. She just got back and she this is her first film role, her first main role. Uh, she's been in Bridgerton and another Netflix show before, but this is her big kind of breakout. And she is amazing. She's someone that I think is going to kind of just fly the second people watch this I think she's going to be kind of everywhere and talking to her about the kind of intensity of learning all this stunt work was so um, interesting so I think like stunt work still is kind of seen as this reserve of male actors and you know there's people like Charlize Theron and um, even someone like Halle Berry who obviously there's a John Wick connection there they get kind of like lifted up I think because we feel like it's so rare and uh, it was really lovely talking to Priya about kind of how intense it was but how kind of rewarding it was to be learning how to do these stunts herself from these kind of incredibly talented stunt professionals and uh, obviously as well like John Wick was directed by Chad Zaleski who is a stunt coordinator has been working in stunts for a very long time so feels like inadvertently we've ended up with like a little dedication to the, the hard-working stunt performers this at the, at the top end of this uh, episode. <laughs> very true. Uh, Meg have you seen Polite Society yet? No, I haven't. It sounds great, though. Well, I mean, it, it's not subtle, but um, <laughs> it will definitely be like a lovely antidote after all of the horrors that we've subjected you to this week. <laughs> Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. We receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady 8Q page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. John Wick uncovers a path to defeating the high table. But before he can earn his freedom, Wick must face off against a new enemy with powerful alliances across the globe and forces that turned old friends into foes. So Hannah, we'll start with you. This is kind of, at its core, it's quite a simple story. It's a story of revenge of a man trying to get away from the system that keeps dragging him back in. But incredibly complicated mythology that goes around that. Did you kind of enjoy the sort of lore of John Wick? Oh, I love the law of John Wick. Yeah, um, I was talking to a friend or kind of we were, we were discussing this in, in the group chat. And I think there was a tweet thread going round about like somebody grumbling about all the law of John Wick and having to kind of understand all these different things to get the most out of the film. And I'm like, no, not really. You don't really have to understand it. You just have to kind of go with it. It's not like Marvel where it's heavily plotted. You know, you need to watch this, that and the other to understand what's happening. This is very much, there's a lot of, world building across the four films but I think you could probably just watch this on its own and still have a great time with it or there's only a few returning characters and a lot of the time with these films you'll get a kind of like a scene where it'll be like ah oh, yes my old friend <laughs> you never kind of really hear the backstory it's just implied that John Wick has this kind of you know very far-reaching network of associates and allies and enemies over decades of uh, work as an international assassin and we're slowly across these films just meeting 
repeating more and more of them to the extent that you have to wonder, like, is everyone in this reality an assassin? How are there so many of them? You know, they, we, we see these big fight scenes where the enemies just keep coming and you're thinking, where are they all coming from? Like, I don't quite have a handle on, you know, the kind of work infrastructure, the labour infrastructure of the John Wick world leaves some big kind of questions to be answered. And watching this one, it was with a friend of the podcast, Camberley, and other friend of the podcast, Steph Watts, and we, we were just kind of asking ourselves, what, what must it be like to be a civilian in the John Wick films? You know, you're just minding your business, like having a lovely time at a techno club in Berlin, and suddenly John Wick appears trying to kill Scott Adkins, who's in this quite distracting fat suit with this like gold grill and they're kind of kicking each other and everything. And you're just dancing away like this is fine. This is totally normal. Like, it's, I, I, I would love to see a short film from the perspective of someone who's just like minding their business in the John Wick world. But yeah, I mean, I, I love the lore. I love these worlds. I am such a sucker for this franchise. I've always greatly enjoyed it. And for me, I was super excited about four. It's been a while since Parabellum and it for me really delivered. I think these films have managed to achieve that rare thing where they found a formula that works. And after four films, I'm quite far from being sick of it. I'm still having the time of my life every time one of these films comes out. Meg, for you, I mean, like a lot of the reviews of this kind of start with it is long it is almost three hours long it's definitely it's the longest chapter so were you engaged for this kind of being three hour runtime i would say it's very hard not to be completely drawn into this film i mean it is very long going into it i was a bit nervous about sort of bathroom breaks but <laughs> i found myself just sitting in the cinema like completely engrossed it's a big movie in sort of every sense of the word the world of John Wick has expanded beyond what it has ever really been before. Yeah, and as Hannah said, it just feels like there are more sort of people in this assassin universe than even in the other films we saw. I don't know what the sort of kill count is for this one, but it's probably going to be the biggest. Yeah, and in terms of staying engrossed for the full three hours, I guess, plot-wise, it's maybe a bit minimal. And if you don't know the other films so well, you might not be so gripped by the plot. But nevertheless, I guess the big sort of really brilliantly done, precise action sequences are more than enough to kind of leave you just in awe. And it's just so much fun. I mean, as illogical and kind of wacky as it is, it is definitely a very fun movie to watch. <laughs> I do think like with these films, I'm continually just so impressed by the imagination that their fight coordinators have. I think we've talked on the podcast before about Marvel movies and the problem is now all the battle sequences look exactly the same. And when I think about the John Wick films, like across the past three, you know, every one of them has a scene where I'm like, oh yeah, I vividly remember, you know, this fight sequence, which was really imaginatively choreographed. And it's the same in this one. I mean, it's set across New York, Osaka, Paris and Berlin. And each of them, apart from New York, has like a really interesting, very location appropriate fight scene. But the Paris scenes, talk about like working your environment into the story. There is a section quite late on which incorporates two of Paris's biggest landmarks and I won't spoil it because I think like there is something to be said for the kind of visceral enjoyment you get just like being like oh they're gonna go there like, um, but yeah I was just so amused by how they managed to incorporate the environment into these fights and there's a real thing about these movies that I love as well just the sense of humour like these are funny films and it can be something as simple as the way Lawrence Fishburne like delivers his lines or the way Keanu Reeves says yeah I think that Meg was at the same screening as me and everyone just kept cracking up 
up every time he said yeah. There's some great Ian McShane action as well. Great like line deliveries from him. Bill Skarsgård doing his little fancy, strange little man thing that he loves to do in these amazing, beautifully made sparkly suits. I mean, the tailoring in this franchise is just on another level. In terms of kind of a visceral like enjoyment thing, I am just so kind of impressed at how they managed to have kept this momentum across four films. I think they've said, Chad Selesky has kind of said this one might be the last one for a little while. There's an amazing interview where he says that he and Keanu are going to go to Japan probably at the end of the year on the press tour there and they'll sit in the Imperial Hotel whiskey bar, have some expensive whiskey and see if they want to do another one. The, The Chad energy of that is really like off the charts. But yeah, I mean, in terms of like films that you want to see in a cinema, I can't think of a franchise that is a better like advertisement for that full kind of watch it with an audience watch it on a huge screen type of storytelling I think it is like it's just such a lot of fun and there's clearly like so much care that goes into these films and they really are you know even if it's not your thing I think you have to kind of admit that they are very good at the thing that they're setting out to do yeah, I mean, it's interesting how Keanu himself has like evolved as a cultural figure. Because I remember when I was younger, he was kind of a bit of a punchline, and now I just, I just love him as these sort of like Zen killing machines. <laughs> Meant for you, I mean, like, what did you make of the kind of Keanu of it all? Yeah, I mean, that's meant to be a Keanu reference <laughs> poorly done <laughs> <laughs> but as as Hannah said, like the, I think his first line in the film is just. Yeah. And the audience that was is good. just that was like, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. This is my contribution. Yeah. People just like eat it up. They absolutely love it. Like, and it's so hard not to be kind of seduced by it and just whether you think he's a, a good actor or a bad actor, it, it kind of doesn't matter in these films. And he's completely delivering like what he's supposed to be delivering as John Wick. And it's just so much fun. I think what's what was really fun about this film in particular is it seems like it's John Wick has kind of hit a point where it can be really self-referential and kind of self-satirizing in a way. And I don't know if it's because I this is the first film of the franchise that I've seen in a cinema, but you really feel that it is so aware of how it's sort of referencing itself and its own wick lore that it has created so it feels like a real fun in joke that everyone on screen and in the cinema is just aware of and again that just makes it such a enjoyable experience I mean, there was a bit of sadness, of course, because sadly, just before this came out, Lance Reddick's um, passing was announced, you know, six years old, far too soon. And he, he's wonderful in this, as he always is. But for you guys, any other highlights from the ensemble? I actually have to say, I, I really liked Bill Skarsgård, even though it's a bit of a kind of Joker-esque performance. He pulls it off. Oh, let me be clear. Like, I, I love Bill Skarsgård. And uh, I'm I'm happy we've got such a Skarsgård-heavy week this week. You know, we're talking about his brother and a second. Something I talk about a lot with my friends, because we're all kind of wickheads, is who you would cast in these movies, because it's a very specific type of actor you have to get. And I think he is a really smart choice. And he doesn't even have any kind of action scenes. He's just there to be kind of a little bit silly and camp and menacing. And he does it really well. I will say as well, yeah, I was very sad, obviously, about the Lance Reddick news. Uh, we will be getting him in the spin-off film, The Ballerina, which is the Anna Diarmas assassin movie. So we- thankfully, we'll be seeing him again. Um, because he, as Sharon, the concierge of the um, New York Continental, has always been such a mainstay of this franchise. And 
it felt really kind of, yeah, very bittersweet to be saying goodbye to him. But I will say as well, uh, Rina Soyuama, I think, is really good in this film. She's, um, for those who may not be aware, she is a pop star. She makes her like on screen acting debut here as the concierge of the Osaka Hotel. And she gets a really quite intense fight scene. And I was very impressed with her acting. I thought she, she fit in really well and it didn't feel kind of like... Sometimes I think when pop stars turn to acting, it can feel very obvious <laughs> that they're not professionally trained. She was very good. And Scott Adkins as killer was not necessarily good, but it was very enjoyable to see this kind of like larger than life, vaguely German, I will say, <laughs> quite questionably German kind of like mob boss. And yeah, I, I have to kind of say like, Every time a new character turned up, I was just delighted. I was like, oh, what's this guy's thing? Like, they're, they're, they're so good at kind of creating these weird characters who just fit in so seamlessly to the environment. Meg, what about you? Any particular highlights? Uh, again, yeah, I have to say Bill Skarsgård as the Marquis. It's just as soon as he appeared on screen in that like glistening suit I was kind of sold it's so over the top his accent as well it's just such a fun performance and it definitely adds to this sort of world where there are these big caricature type people that John Wick is interacting with and yeah I think he did such a great job much has been made of like the lighting in these films and like how good they use kind of neon and how it's kind of much more attractive than the sort of sludgy CGI nonsense that we're so used to. I mean, did that work for you or do you think it was a little over-stylized? I think it does work. I mean, the sort of comic book-esque style of these films works in the same way in that it feels heightened, uh, unreal in a really aesthetically pleasing way. Like you've got these sort of captions that pop up across the screen with like the bold colored letters. And it feels like you're sort of almost watching comic book come to life or an anime come to life. These sort of really stylish neon lit fight scenes in particular that gives each of the fight scenes a larger than life glean. I mean, how would you define the aesthetic? Because I think people say neo-noir, but that doesn't feel quite right to me. This is neon-noir. <laughs> yeah, neon-noir. <laughs> I guess that's probably one of the reasons the franchise has kind of done so well is that I don't think it looks like anything else out there necessarily. And I think it has influenced action filmmaking in a massive way since. It's interesting that it doesn't feel like, you know, watching anything else necessarily, for me anyway. Maybe hardcore action people would, would beg to differ, but I'm I'm not really. These, these are kind of my big indulgence into that world. But I think it's just the, the mastery of kind of set design and production design and, again, costume design, which we've already mentioned, but like it really bears repeating that there's such a synergy, it feels like, between all the teams that work on these films. And they're so good at kind of incorporating the worlds that, these characters move through into the fight scenes and into the lore, I guess. Like, the, you know, the, they go to Osaka because it's where John Wick is hiding with one of his kind of old, <laughs> another old friend. And there's a really intense scene in the in this kind of strange gallery basement area. And sometimes when I watch films, I think, did that need to be where it is? Or was it you just wanted to film that there so you could get a free <laughs> a free holiday? The locations always feel, it's almost like the locations are part of a character in the story. Like it's clear that they love 
kind of exploring the rest of the world. And I think the fact they haven't just stayed in New York or stayed in America has really been a smart move for the franchise because it feels kind of lived in. It feels like there's this whole other underworld out there. And that's probably why they can make so many of these films because it has a real global sensibility to it. I guess in the same way, like something like James Bond or Mission Impossible does where they're kind of running around the world, but it makes sense for the story. Although you are thinking like, how did they get a dog on the plane from New York to Paris? And then you're just kind of like, okay, I'm just going to go with it. And I'm not going to question that choice. But stylistically, like, just love looking at these films. I think like the cinematographers work so hard to make them interesting and to make sure that we can see what's going on during the fight scenes, which is like, it sounds like a small thing. But as we know from watching so many terribly lit films it's an underrated thing making sure the audience can see what's going on <laughs> god i must say that that kind of rather silly plot machination of and here's my old friend that i have a storied history with is, is one of my favorite flourishes of plot whenever it happens in the sopranos and they just introduce like oh and cousin tony who you know we are very emotionally invested together and we would die for one another and I'm just like yeah sure Never mentioned it before, but I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we should get some scores on this. Hannah, do you want to start in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? I mean, I think it's a five in anticipation. I'm so excited about this. There's always that doubt in the back of my mind, like, can they do it again? But then enjoyment, I'm going to say four because I'm not, I mean, I've been talking so rapturously about it. Uh, People might be surprised by that. But yeah, the ending for me, I'm not going to say what happens, but I, I, I was maybe a little kind of underwhelmed by the ending. And then... In retrospect, I think it's probably a four as well. I'm going to sound very like um, positive on this podcast because it's a really good week for films. But but yeah, I can't lie. I mean, I'm still thinking about it two days later and I will probably go and see it again, despite it being really long. I just get such enjoyment out of these films. Oh, Meg, what about you? I'm going to go with a three for anticipation because I enjoyed, I did enjoy the first three John Wick films, but I wasn't really expecting the sense of fun that I got from seeing it in a crowded cinema. So yeah, that brings me to the four for enjoyment. I think that seeing it on a big screen with a big crowd you really realize just how carefully done the action sequences are, the storytelling that goes into each and every moment in those sequences is really, really impressive. And again, Bill Skarsgård as the very potentially French (laughs) villain added this new sense of enjoyment to the the franchise for me. And overall, yeah, I think, again, I'm going to go for a four. Very fair enough. I'm probably at a four, four, maybe 3.5 towards the end. I mean, it's good. I'd recommend it to people. I think it's a good time at the movies. But yeah, I think like you, I was a little underwhelmed by the conclusion. But yes, Mm. still, if this inspires some other filmmakers to actually give more of a damn about their action sequences, then then that would be a five for me. (laughs) Next up, it's Infinity Pool. James and M. Foster are enjoying an all-inclusive beach vacation in the fictional island of Latolka when a fatal accident exposes the resort's perverse subculture of hedonistic tourism, reckless violence, and surreal horrors. But before we get into Brandon Cronenberg's latest, Little White Lies' Marina Asciotti spoke to the reigning queen of horror, Mia Goth. Uh, so are you finding it either more challenging or, or more rewarding to embody roles that require you to play multiple personas or multiple characters like 
between X and Pearl or like your character, like Gabby and in Infinity Pool? Not particularly. It's just what's been presented to me at a certain period of time in my life and in, in, in this stage of my career. But I don't think that it's any less challenging or rewarding to play someone like a Harriet Smith in Emma. That was one of the most um, enjoyable experiences that I've ever had and, and, and found that incredibly rewarding. It just so happens to be that that's one what was presented to me or of what was being presented, that the most intriguing and, and, and the most challenging at that time. And what would be, would you say, your most challenging role that you've had to do? Probably Pearl, um, because of the intensity of what that shoot was and, and, and what was required of me. You know, Pearl is in, in every scene and we were doing six, eight uh, weeks and long 15 hour days and also what she goes through I mean she's um, processing and dealing with so much and she really runs the gamut in her emotions and, and what she goes through that yeah and how did that experience of shooting Pearl differ from from our ex it felt more focused it felt more concentrated it felt as though X was in many ways kind of a warm-up for what I did in Pearl you know there was always a big question mark over Pearl as to whether we were ever going to shoot that whilst we were filming X. And then right at the very end, as we were coming to the last couple of weeks of shooting Pearl, we got the green light from A24. But, uh, you know, X was... Um, I was playing older Pearl and I was playing Maxine and it was much more of an ensemble and we, we had a great cast. But once I, you know, got we got the green light for Pearl and we started actually shooting, it just... I don't know, I just had a very... I don't know how else to describe it. I was just very focused and it was just one character and she was going for one specific thing and she had one goal and, and she was trying to overcome one particular issue and, and yeah, had tunnel vision in a way whilst, whilst shooting that. You've said in the past that you're very director-oriented um, and you do tend to give a, a lot of yourself and what you do to the directors that you work with. I'm interested in the dynamics of that relationship and whether you feel like a certain director needs to be also giving something back, whether it's how you flesh out a character together or is like you giving all of yourself to a director just like a part of the job for you. I find that the best directors, or at least in my own experience... The best directors kind of just leave you alone. You know, they, they cast you, they decide that you're going to be right for the role and you have an ongoing dialogue in pre-production and, and a little bit in, in on the shoot, really. But by the time you get to set, the ones that the best directors, like Brandon, for example, really just kind of let you do what you want and, and, and provide a, a parameter to exist and, and a play within and, and create within. But really, he just kind of let me do what I want. And if every now and again, you know, he would hone me back in a little bit if he felt it was too much or it didn't work within the context of the scene but direction at that point was quite minimal and he would just say you know, certain key words every now and again to direct me but that's the best working relationship I think is when you're kind of giving so much that he, they they either you know just uh, need you to tone it down a little bit which is easier than asking for more and more and more always and then also just letting the director do everything else that the director has to do you know they're constantly like juggling a hundred things at a time and so and was there something in particular that drew you to uh, Brandon as director? Were you familiar with his previous films? I was familiar with his previous films and, and then I'd been a fan of his films. And, and, and I think uh, he has a really unique perspective and a really unique vision. And, and that comes through incredibly well through his work. And um, I read the script and thought it was so wild and so out there and, and, and really just seemed like a gift 
that was being presented to me whilst I was reading it and what was being asked of me uh, as an actor it just uh, it, I you know I knew very early on that this was something that I had to do and how did he approach you for this role I received the script whilst I was filming Pearl and I originally I I didn't want to be reading anything at that time whilst I was in the middle of that of that shoot because it was so intense but the script came along and, and, and it had Brandon's name on it and a short synopsis and I was very intrigued and so on my day off I read the script and I knew instantly that that was something that I wanted to be a part of and so once I wrapped and I got home we zoomed and yeah the relationship started from there. And did he give you any kind of uh, references to work with like any films or any characters or anything? I was kind of left to my own devices to, to build that character. He had an idea visually as to what he wanted her to look like, which is always helpful to have that as a blueprint. But other than that, really, any idea that I threw at him, he was like, yeah, go for it, explore that, which was which was great. I, I love it when directors give you the freedom that is necessary to create a role. So any particular parts of Gabby that you kind of like came up with and Brandon ended up embracing? I would say probably her arc that, that, that I decided to go with in the end. You, you know, she wasn't written as such a sweet and... Uh, like at the very beginning of the movie, we're presented with Gabby and she's meeting Alex for the first time. And I thought it was very important that you should come across as, as unassuming and, 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 and as sweet and perhaps somewhat naive as possible. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. I mean, why would he and M, played by Cleopatra Coleman, why would they agree to be involved in with such people? And so she starts off as quite sweet and then she really you know, goes through such an arc and... and, and and ends up at the very end of the movie as such a in a completely different space where she's just so feral in many ways. Yeah, and any parts that like when you were reading the script kind of like jumped out at you as this character is not what I expected her to be or... Yeah, that happened pretty early on, right after the car accident. And, uh, you know, they, Gabby and, 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 and Alban say, we'll see you at breakfast. And um, I thought, oh, okay, I kind of, I, I, I see who this is and, and where this is going and, and, and what her role is in the film. And then a few scenes later, Alex is downstairs and, and extending his stay and uh, and then Gabby's sitting in the corner again. And that surprised me because then that signaled to me, oh, okay, this is uh, far more layered than, than I had assumed and I found that very intriguing and exciting and um, I was quite impressed by her at that point because I thought she was one thing and then she was there and it signaled to me like oh no the story is actually only just beginning. No her arc really is something. Am I right remembering that you uh, said that you had kind of like distanced yourself from uh, Alex throughout the shooting of the film is that correct? Yeah yeah I did do that I thought it would be beneficial to our performances if we had the opportunity to get to know each other more on screen rather than off it for these two particular characters. Sometimes it's actually, it's 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 the opposite and it's actually, you, you want to build a relationship as much as possible beforehand, but for the dynamic that they have, just make it more textured and, and more real. And there's something to two people meeting for the first time. There's a, There's an energy that comes with that there's there's a little bit of tension and you, you know as you're navigating each other and and getting to know each other for the first time and and, and that dissolves pretty quickly after that you kind of you know the person a little better and you feel a little more comfortable well I, and well I, I, th- I think maybe just for me I don't know I can't speak to everyone but I'm not the most socially forward person and there's a tension that comes with that and that's actually quite a tool that I can use and 
you know, once you get to know the person, that dissolves. But you can harness that energy and and, and put that in the scene. So, you know, that dinner scene where we're in the uh, in the Chinese restaurant, that was probably my first real conversation with, with Alex. Maybe actually this was the first time that I really kind of took that approach. And it was the, really the first time, I guess, that it was seemed necessary and, and, mm. and important to do so. I didn't think I've actually done that before. And in terms of, like, do you have any other limits? If you were to call this a limit in terms of performing for the camera and, like, giving yourself over to the story? I don't think I have limits. Mm. I think if I decide to do a project and, 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 and invest my time into it and if we're on set and um, it feels as though something might be beneficial to, to making the scene better, there really isn't... I don't think there isn't anything that I would do to make the scene better. Mm. So would you say that Gabby taught you something unique about your process in that sense? You always learn something new about yourself and a little bit more about your process every time that you know you, you have the chance to, 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 to make a movie. And I think at least when Gabby is on the resort, she's so comfortable in her own skin. And I think that's probably something that, you know, I, I, I had to learn because I'm really not incredibly uh, at ease ever. And, and, and so I think um, having to tap into that and, and, and understand what it means and, and tap into that reserve of my own is probably something that I can give a lot of credit to, to Gabby for uh, and, and just understand the power that comes with that. And moving forward with that, I think, is probably something that she gave me. It's just the becoming more comfortable in my own skin. And I guess this is this is a bit more of a sillier question, but um, do you have any like scream queens that you look up to? I don't know if I have any scream queens that I look up to, but I would say that my favourite actress would have to be Kate Blanchett. She's my North Star. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever in doubt, I ask, I, 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 uh, I, I ask myself, what would Kate Blanchett do? There was a time when I was going to start an Instagram account and I thought maybe I was flirting with the idea of starting one. And then I was like, oh, I don't know. I was teetering between opening account and not. And then I was like, what would Kate Blanchett do? She doesn't have one. Okay, I'm not going to have do the filmmakers that you work with have like any lasting impact on what you go on to do next? Not always, but well, yeah, even when it's not the best experience, there's a lot of value in that too. And, you know, I, I wasn't formally trained as an actor, so all of my experience does come from set. And so you, you, those relationships are, are, are really valuable and, 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 and I, and I learn a lot from them. And my first movie was um, Nymphomaniac with Lars von Trier and so I really felt like I started the, at such a high level in terms of the, the kind of director and, and, and the project that I was working on that route that too became a North Star for me in, in, in many ways and 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 um, was kind of and, and I've really kind of been following that trajectory my entire career and and have always, yeah, and that's also been a blueprint with the kind of directors that I like to work with and, and the, the kind of projects that I find myself drawn to. But yeah, from Lars to, to, and, and to, to everyone since then, yeah. I, I guess every time that I work with a director, this idea of just having to have a, a very strong relationship, a, a relationship where you feel comfortable and, and more than anything I think a friendship is necessary mm-hmm. and that's reinforced every time that I work like the closer you are with your director the, the the better the work ends up being the more of a shorthand you can have with with the person that you're working with then the, the the work is is better for it and was that the experience with Lars as well 
Yeah, you know, but it, that was my first movie. I was 18 years old, so I was just in, in a state of awe and just... I was just like a kid at a candy shop. I just could, like, I'd been auditioning for so long at that point, And then I'd finally gotten my first job. And it was right at the time where I was finishing school and, and I was kind of going into the world for the first time. And, and so there I was a nymphomaniac. And really, I was just, I was a child still at that point. And so as I've grown and evolved, and the, the, the relationship with my director has changed too. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was working with Lars, more than anything, I think I, I kind of looked to him more as like a, a fatherly paternal figure and he kind of he was very aware that I was so young and the same age as one of his own children and so he was um very protective of me and as you know as so as I've grown the relationship the nature of my relationship with my directors have changed perfect so Meg you want to kick us off when it comes to infinity pool sure so I really enjoyed this film, actually. I've, you know, seen a bit of body horror in my time, and I'm always very uh, hesitant, a little bit nervous about it. But this film in particular is so stylishly, seamlessly crafted that it's really hard to find fault or hesitancy about the grossness of it as far as body horror goes. The way he creates this kind of, like, hedonistic, nightmarish world and just drops you further and further into it is really odd to watch. He manages to, I think I wanted I wanted to mention the cinematography by Karim Hussein, who's worked with Cronenberg a few times, because the way they craft their shots, they just manage to constantly leave you with this sense of like unease. You're not really sure where you are, what's real. And that kind of encapsulates like the feeling of the the film for me is this sense of like, wait a minute, what's real? Is this really the person we're looking at or is it someone else? And it just kind of gets worse and worse as the film goes on. But yeah, even in the, the sort of smaller scenes, he manages to create this sort of disorientation. Um, I'm not sure of the technical term, but I noticed in one of the early sort of close-ups, he's put the sort of front of the face right up, pressed up against the edge of the frame, which is quite unusual in film. Usually you have sort of more empty space in front of the face and it just gives you this sense of claustrophobia and like something is just a little bit off and yeah it it was um an interesting experience to watch for that reason there was another shot where i thought maybe like i couldn't tell but the rain was coming down but i thought maybe the rain was going up and it's just this eerie it's obviously done in sort of bigger ways as well he's got these like big scenes of hallucinatory like orgies and drug use and people are wearing these really creepy masks and again he's using some really interesting sort of cinematography tricks because none of it's cgi but that's all sort of built up to with these smaller scenes at the beginning which which yeah i I thought was really interesting and um left me feeling unsettled I I couldn't agree with you more because it it seems rare that a film can be this gory and explicit in some ways, but then also kind of have this kind of creepy, unsettling tone that kind of is maintained even after like the bad thing has happened. Hannah, for you, I mean, we've had a lot of eat the rich social satires when it comes to the horror genre. Was this kind of a little bit more interesting in its messaging? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah. When this um, debuted at Sundance, I saw a lot of people saying, oh, you know, another Eat the Rich uh, film. But I don't really think it is that. I mean, um, typically with those sort of films like The Menu or with something like Triangle of Sadness, it's kind of about the rich like getting their comeuppance. And I, and I don't really think that happens in this film. I think it's a very depressing film in that manner. You know, you're kind of waiting for the tide to turn. And uh, I hope it's not a spoiler to say that like Cronenberg Jr. is never really that simple in his filmmaking. I think it's um, there's a pervasive dread across all of his films, like Antivial and Possessor, where you're just kind of you're you you feel as much as the characters kind of trapped in these situations and you know you're waiting for it to get better and it doesn't really it just kind of gets worse um which i love i'm very on board with i think he's a deeply imaginative filmmaker in that regard he's giving us kind of images that i certainly haven't seen before and uh, that's not necessarily an easy thing to do when you're working in the horror space i think especially in this kind of air quote elevated horror era which you know is kind of a not a great term but he's someone that is very committed to his artistic vision and bringing that through in the film and you know i I don't like to compare him to his dad because i don't think it's necessarily very fair but it's kind of hard not to when they're making films in the same kind of genre space. I think that's something that they have in common is that even though as filmmakers, I think they're very different. I think that commitment to telling a story exactly the way they want to tell it and kind of they, they don't really care if the audience gets it or not is very like, I, it feels very punk and I love it when filmmakers do that. And even when I don't necessarily like the film, it's kind of, you know, just being able to see that someone is so dedicated to not only their vision, but like getting people on board with that vision is very uh, rewarding. I think it's seeing Alexander Skarsgård and Mia Goth like commit so kind of fully to this film and it, it can't have been easy because it you know both their roles seem very intense very demanding I mean Mia Goth especially is kind of pivoting from being very sweet to very menacing and Skarsgård really bless him goes through it in this film so um I just yeah I, I one of the things I love about horror is seeing people give themselves over to this hellish vision and you definitely get that sense with this one I think it's maybe not my favorite of, of Cronenberg's films I think Possessor is still probably the best he's done so far and I'm not just saying that because I love Christopher Abbott and want him to get more work I always love a kind of holiday goes wrong film and it, it gosh it goes wrong in this one like it really it makes the island this fictional island they're on look so relentlessly miserable and that I kind of I kind of appreciated this idea of like you know you go on this beautiful holiday and it's just just, you're just miserable the whole time and it's raining and it's like oh got all this money and still still not happy yeah that I was like well you know rich people have bad holidays too I guess I love your review that you wrote of this and I wanted to pick up on um what you pointed out that Alexander Skarsgård is incredibly good at paying losers. What is yeah. It, do you think that makes him look so Oh my so gosh. Good at- I, I stand by this, not just because I saw a video of him dancing at the succession party. I don't know if you guys saw this because he's so handsome. He's convinced everyone. He's like really cool, but I actually think he's like a huge nerd. In this film, we get it. We get it in a little bit in The Kingdom and his little role and we got it a little bit in uh, Diary of a Teenage Girl. Um, I think part of it is like the gangliness. He's a very tall kind of slightly awkward I think at times figure but then yeah I think he's very 
good at kind of distorting his incredible handsomeness with this kind of like wide-eyed almost like you think about kind of like the Jamie Lee Curtis like face it's distorted in kind of fear and horror in Halloween or you know the kind of the scream queens of yore he's very is unvain a word I think he's very um willing to kind of make himself look look foolish on camera or, or look harried look like he's got himself into a situation that he doesn't know how to get out of and that kind of like commitment I think is very admirable and I think it's probably why he and Mia Goth are very well matched is because they're both incredibly willing to just take their character to the natural like end point of it and uh, in this film and in Pearl I think we see Mia Goth really giving her all to these performances and I think that's kind of yeah the great joy of watching Infinity Pool is that you're seeing two actors who are so good at what they're doing but not necessarily kind of like showy about it these horrible realities that Brandon Cronenberg creates could be real like I think for someone who's so stylistic and so kind of curated in the images he's creating there is this like eerie underbelly with his filmmaking that makes me feel like oh this isn't that far removed from reality dear god Meg, finally, uh, we were talking a bit about Succession earlier. I'm being excited for that. And that's obviously a show where you don't necessarily like have to like a single person in it in order to be really interested in what happens to it. I mean, given that basically everybody in this film is loathsome, were you still kind of interested in what fate lay ahead of them? I mean, I think so, purely because the stuff that Alexander Skarsgård in particular is going through is so unexpectedly horrific. You can't help but at least want to see what happens. Whether you care or not is maybe another <laughs> another question, but it's definitely a film that leads you towards some kind of a conclusion and resolution and you are definitely desperate to know what that might be. And I mean, I I don't want to give any spoilers, but his sort of final horrific moment is so off-putting that no matter whether he's a a bad person or a good person, it's um, emotionally uh, moving (laughs) in a sort of horrifying way. Yeah, emotionally moving in a sort of horrifying way. We've sort of nailed the sort of of films that I enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah, do you want to get some scores on this? In anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Yeah, I think it's, it's fours across the board for me. I was very excited about this going up to Sundance you know I heard about it I think it was announced quite a while ago so was keen to watch it and have now seen it twice and still kind of think it's you know it's very solid filmmaking and yeah I think at this point with Brandon Cronenberg I'm just kind of like uh, he's got kind of free reign I'm always going to be kind of interested in, in what he's doing and who he's working with and yeah, it's just nice to see some like kind of real imagination and real kind of like sick stuff coming through <laughs> in his films. And th- this got cut as well. Like, I dread to think what the the uncut version was because this one is pretty, uh, it's still pretty gnarly, I think. It certainly is. Uh, Meg, what about you? Uh, I'm going to give this a three for anticipation purely because I was a bit nervous about the the horror element of it, but um, also had heard really good things and am a big fan of Skarsgård and and Goth. And then I, I think a four for both enjoyment and retrospect as 
Hannah said their performances really make this film work. You know, they can, Mia Goth in particular flits between sort of this creepy, psychotic person to being potentially normal and the way they are able to embody these really unpredictable characters makes the whole, the whole unsettling thing really work and fits with Cronenberg's sort of stylized disturbia. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I'm fours across the board as well. I really love interviewing Brandon Cronenberg for Little White Lies, but Possessor, he just seemed like such a smart, thoughtful, creative person to me and really enjoyed it and thought it was great. I loved the ending as well. I think whatever you think is going to happen, it's not what does. And it sort of subverts your expectation in a way that you don't realise is so much more disturbing than probably what you assumed was going to happen. And I believe in that interview, he told me that after this, he's going to make a film in space called Dragon. So very much hoping that that happens. Next up, The Five Devils. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And... Don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Vicky lives with her mother, Joanne, and father, Jimmy, a man struggling to find his place. When Vicky's Aunt Julia arrives after being released from prison, her present brings back the past in a violent and cool way. So Hannah, this is definitely our most understated film of the week. I mean, did you find this sort of naturalistic, magical world compelling? It's funny that you say understated and it literally starts with like a massive fire. <laughs> yeah, no, this was one that I'd heard about out of Cannes and I didn't get to watch it there and I've kind of missed it a few times. It's been at various festivals and I just I kept missing it and I was like, oh, I really want to watch this. I'd heard a lot about the use of Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler in the film and I love Adele Exarchopoulos. I think she is uh, amazing actress who seems very hardworking as well. She seems to be in a lot of stuff. And um, so I was very excited to see another one of her films. And then the kind of 
conceit of this was so interesting to me. Um, you know, smell is a notoriously difficult thing to translate into screen or onto a screen. And um, yet here we have it. Like I think Leah Mezias has like done it really brilliantly. And as someone who was a kid who used to make potions in the bathroom, I felt very kind of like seen by uh, young Vicky, who's wonderfully played by Sally Dramay, who's this incredibly young actress who brings so much kind of like life to this small child who's very inquisitive and kind of a little bit otherworldly has this amazing gift of a sense of smell that can transport her back in time and yeah I think it's a very um, stylish very kind of beguiling film I think it it withholds a lot from you as a viewer and there's a lot for you to decode as a as an audience member watching it and there's some kind of questions I don't really think are answered by the time it finishes but I think in terms of kind of vision and like emotional impact I think it's it's a very strong film uh and Meg for you I mean we kind of have quite a complicated narrative we're going backwards and forwards through time and we're seeing things from different people's perspective did you find that kind of narrative flourish uh engaging yeah definitely I think I mean this film kind of reminded me of bear with me because it's maybe an odd comparison but of Petit Maman which came out last year another French film which is another sort of magical yet understated mother-daughter time travel story and I think this sort of low-key magic time travel thing works very well for this idea of sort of a young girl trying to understand and discover who her mother really is and in both both of the films it's not overly explained where you are when you are how it works you know it's not sci-fi in the classic sense in that way where there's a magic stone that transports you through a portal you know it's a lot more subtle I mean in this film it's sort of a potion scenario as um, Hannah mentioned she makes these sort of scent-based potions but you never really understand how that works um, why that works if she's even controlling it or doing it on purpose and I kind of like the vagary of that and the um, the way it keeps the audience just sort of wondering how it works and why it works. And it actually allows the focus to really hone in on the emotional impact of what's going on as opposed to the the reason for the magic in the story in the first place. We, we also have to mention the needle drop. I mean, Meg, for you, total eclipse of the heart. Did that kind of distract from things or did you think it was used well? I kind of loved it. I mean, it's such a banger. <laughs> yeah, it's a really fun song. Um, it sort of appears once as a needle drop and once as a really odd, kind of uncomfortable karaoke moment that's both really moving for some of the characters and then equally unsettling and odd as everyone else is watching it happen and yeah looking back on the film I think it does kind of stand out as a moment around which the rest of the film sort of sits sits around that song in a way which is quite nice in a film where everything else is quite sort of slow and and humdrum to have this big anthem appear and allow some of the characters to kind of release a lot of the emotion that they've been bottling up inside. I had it for you. I mean, like that kind of restraint that happens throughout a lot of the film. Was there any part of you that kind of wanted it to kind of amp up the tension and kind of get more grisly or get more heightened? Or are you quite happy with this more gentle tone? Yeah, I think I, I one of my kind of only complaints, it's not really a complaint. I, I think it, 
does give you questions that you don't necessarily get the answers to or or there's kind of some unresolved things I didn't necessarily think it was totally kind of satisfying by its ending but I do think in terms of Leah I mean I was just talking about Brandon Cronenberg having a very clear vision I think it's very obvious that uh, Leah Mirzius has the same thing where she knows exactly what story she wants to tell and executes it incredibly well I think that definitely comes across here it feels like a very complete vision every part of it is kind of working together you know I think the moments of kind of violence within the film which are very the very few and far between work well because they're kind of sparing and uh, Meg just mentioned like comparing it to Petty Mammon. I, I kept thinking about the Fablemans weirdly during this film. I think that moment of when you see your parents as people for the first time as a kid and you realise that they had a life before you and that they have things going on that don't really concern you as a child and you start to wonder how those things might impact your relationship and I think one of the kind of most real moments in the film for me is Vicky asking Joanne um, if she says uh, did you love me before I even existed and I thought like it just felt like such a real thing that a child would would ask their parent uh, would ask their mother and I think that kind of like anxiety that Vicky clearly has as this young mixed race child who's being bullied at school and kind of notices that her parents have this quite fraught relationship but doesn't necessarily understand why until she starts this time traveling thing that I found very poignant within the story and something that I think we don't necessarily get to see explored on screen that often and I also kind of like the implication that Vicky's time traveling may have impacted the past which is you know you get into a whole like snakey eating its tail thing there of like wait but how did her going back in time impact the past if that hadn't happened like would the future be different you know you can go insane thinking about that but um the whole kind of like conceit of the going her going back to the past the only person that can see her is her aunt who is this very mysterious figure who moved away and comes back and reunites with the family and it's very tense and yeah <laughs> vicky tra- travels back in time <laughs> really really freaks out her poor her poor aunt who uh, is just living her life and keeps seeing this small child like a, a, you know staring at her and no one else can see her and it makes her look quite insane to everyone else but yeah i think it's very imaginative film and it's it's so funny that we got to time travel child movies within the space of like two years i think don't know what's going on in france but i'm really happy about it i think it's great (laughs) well do you want to get your scores on this yeah i think maybe a maybe a three in anticipation um i guess i'd heard a little bit about it but i'd not seen leah mazius's past film and yeah i think sometimes adele as much as i love i can make not great choices so um i was a little bit kind of like managing my expectations but then um i think it's a four four for me i think it's really beautiful film a very stylish affair and has some really quite arresting shots in it that i think are definitely kind of going to stay with me that certainly the the shot that's been everywhere in publicity of uh, Adele kind of standing in front of this burning building is is very strong and yeah I'm I'm super excited to see what uh, Leia does next. Meg what about you? Yeah I think the same probably a three four four I didn't know too much about Leia Mysias before the film was eager to see Adele I think she's she's really great in the film and I was yeah I was uh, excited for maybe um, a, a slower paced film out of the four and I was yeah very very pleasantly surprised by the sort of beauty of the 
the conceit of this film. The premise is is really a lovely one. And I appreciated that Mysias was willing to go quite creepy with it, maybe leave us feeling a little bit uncomfortable about the child. Uh, it wasn't too saccharine in that way, which um, which is quite nice because uh, I think this kind of thing risks being a bit too sickly sweet. But it does have this sort of creepy, eerie edge. Uh, and yeah, I'll give it a four overall as well. Yeah, probably three coming into it and then maybe a three in enjoyment. But I I kind of blame myself, not the film for that, because it's a bit like when you come off a motorway and then you have to kind of drive at 20 miles per hour. Like if you've watched John Wick 4 and then Infinity Pool and then Wake and Fright in the space of 24 hours. (laughs) Why is so little happening? But yeah, uh, for in retrospect, I think I uh, agree. I, I thought it was really moving and it's something that really does well when you kind of reflect back upon it. Yeah, next up, Film Club. In Waking Fright, John Grant, a teacher working in a remote Australian town, is under financial bond with his government job. He plans to visit his girlfriend in Sydney for the Christmas holidays, but in order to catch a flight to Sydney, he has to first take a train to a nearby mining town nicknamed the Yabba. But things go terribly wrong as he is engulfed by the Yabba and its disconcerting residents. So, Hannah, it's another disconcerting film, <laughs> which is not so much, I suppose, eat the rich as eat the poor. It's quite a, a damning <laughs> look at a very sad provincial town in Australia. What did you make of Waiting Fright? Yeah, so I, I chose this one for Film Club because I had a feeling it would pair well with Infinity Pool, and I was correct. So I felt very kind of justified in my choice. There's a lovely anecdote, if you look on the Wikipedia page for this film, about this film's reception in Australia which was a very controversial film. It, it screened at Cannes and people loved it there. In Australia, quite, fairly, I think, um, there were some criticisms around the way it does portray Australia and Australian culture. And um, so, so this, this is a quote from Wikipedia, uh, which I greatly enjoy. During an early Australian screening, one man stood up, pointed at the screen and protested, that's not us, to which Jack Thompson, one of the actors from the film, yelled back, sit down, mate, it is us. <laughs> That's just like, that is not only the most Australian, like, interaction ever a screening of a film just I think yeah kind of crystallizes the relationship that the country has with this film I think even to this day where it's it's kind of acknowledged as uh, one of the great Australian masterpieces of filmmaking but it is it's not a flattering portrait of rural life in Australia it does present this mining town as kind of this animalistic place where all the men just sit around getting drunk and harassing women and it's you know it's the kind of conceit is that this um, middle class at, at the very least kind of like educated outsider becomes part of this community and slowly kind of devolves to their level and embraces these customs and I guess it's saying that you know kind of anyone can become part of like a kind of unpleasant group if they're susceptible enough which I guess is an interesting to think about in terms of you know now we think about things like the alt-right and anti-trans groups and how people get indoctrinated into that and this is kind of like a a very different example but you can kind of understand how it would be interpreted today as um they kind of, you know, bring him in with these drinking games and seeming like really kind of like fun, you know, kind of down to earth, salt, salt of the earth type Australian guys. And slowly it gets more and more sinister. And John Grant becomes like kind of terrified of, of what he has become, what he's let himself become. And that I found very interesting, like all the kind of threat 
is coming from like himself really it's you know no one is kind of making him do this which I think yeah that that is something quite interesting it's not like the typical foreigner gets stranded somewhere and horrible things are done to them it's just yeah it's kind of John himself descending into this uh, animalistic state of madness yeah, it, it's such a good companion piece to Infinity Pool. I think this is such a good choice because there is that thing of like, well, when, once you've kind of taken away the normal parameters of society and the expectations of you, how quickly do you become a monster, I suppose? Mm. Meg, for you, is this your first time coming to Wake and Fright? Yes, I hadn't seen it before. And again, yeah, I saw it shortly after watching Infinity Pool. And it is such an interesting comparison, just watching this sort of like hapless man who can't seem to really decide what he wants, get led a bit too easily into this nightmare scenario. It does strike me as like a very pointed critique of masculinity, especially Wake and Fright of the two films, sort of like toxic masculine culture of beer and fighting and... (laughs) guns it sort of doesn't shy away from showing that stereotype in its fullest i mean and cruelty to kangaroos which cannot be overstated that is uh, yeah yeah. one of the more harrowing sequences i think the footage of the kangaroo hunt in this film um has been kind of like i think hangs over it a little bit because it is very violent and it was you know real footage of a kangaroo hunt and there's a lot of like kind of controversy not just because of it being violent and it being very unpleasant to watch and knowing you know these kangaroos poor kangaroos did die but the crew behind the film have said it was a nightmare to shoot because the hunters were just getting drunk and it was described by Brian West who was a cinematographer as an orgy of killing and the crew were just getting increasingly upset by this as rightfully so so they had to kind of stage a power cut in order to like make it end that I think makes it even worse knowing that behind the scenes it was an incredibly unpleasant thing to film as well it's just the relentlessness I think within the film it seems like it goes on forever and it is it's like a 10 minute scene and that is the the hardest part of it to watch I think and that's no no mean feat because it's a hard film to watch there's a lot of like disgusting a lot of bodily fluids and a lot of kind of sweat and uh, you do get a sense for kind of how oppressive this kind of life is and how hard this life is you know that it's the reason they kind of drink so much is because there's nothing else to do they're kind of you know it's a mining town the men go and work in the mines and then they kind of come out exhausted and it's you know it's presented as a very um, insular community and i like your point about the idea of how quickly it takes you know you know for someone outside to kind of become a part of that community because i think yeah that's that's really about what the film is it's kind of what separates us from the animals is like a, a very thin thread and yeah i i just think it's such a amazing slice of what australian filmmaking i'm so glad it was found because for years it, it was thought that they'd lost the uh, they'd only got one copy of it on one print of the film and it was not in a good enough shape to restore so there was this big kind of search for the other prints of the film and eventually they found them in a i think in a storage locker in in america somewhere it was marked to be destroyed the the kind of negatives and thank god they found them and uh, were able to make a restoration of the film and it's now quite widely available i watched it on bfi player because i think you know it's also a reminder of kind of the importance of preserving film history you know i think it's such a shame that there's probably so many films like this from not just australia but other countries that don't get necessarily the same attention 
as maybe the American film industry or the British film industry or the French film industry. You know, I, I, watching it, I just, I, I just kept going back to that idea of like history getting lost as well. And yeah, I, I think it's a really great film, a, re- a very hard film, but um, a very good one. Yeah, I mean, history, but a lot of these themes about isolation and drinking too much and becoming your worst <laughs> self in a in a kind of environment of, of of bad ideas. These have some present relevancy. I mean, for you, Meg, did you kind of think that this actually did speak to any kind of contemporary issues? I want to put this like delicately. As I said, like there is a very present issue I think in Britain in particular uh, being from Canada having seen it since moving here of sort of like the pub culture and the idea that like another beer another beer you know and there's one scene in this film where there's sort of Donald Pleasance's doc is sort of waxing lyrical about philosophy very drunkenly while two men are like tussling behind him you know fighting in the dust and it sort of struck me as a sort of snapshot of what can happen when (laughs) men in particular maybe don't know how to deal with what they're going through you know the the problem with uh yeah the sort of toxic masculine culture and the brutality that can come out in male relationships especially under the influence of alcohol drinking too much I definitely think it has a lot of contemporary relevance in that way sadly true but we can move on to something nice I'm going to end the podcast as we now do with you guys giving the listeners a non-movie recommendation I absolutely love this segment Hannah do you want to start what is your non-movie recommendation yeah, so mine is theatre. I was trying to remember if I did theatre last time I was on the podcast. I would like to recommend the Lehman trilogy, uh, which is a play by <laughs> Layla. Le- Le- very excited by this because she recommended it to me in the first place. Play by Stefano Messini, uh, which was originally, I think it's it's nine years old. They're doing a revival right now at the Gillian Lynn Theatre in London, and it's directed by Sam Mendes. And it is just great. It's a three-hour, three-act play about the history of the Lehman family who founded the Lehman Brothers Bank, which obviously went under during the 2008 financial crisis. There's been so many financial crises, having struggled to remember them all. But yeah, right it's... now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're not quite in a recession, they've said. I'm like, I thought we were already in a recession. Uh, There's okay, definitely well... something going on with banks. I don't really understand it. <laughs> Nor did I learn anything from the Lehman trilogy. I, don't, I still don't understand it. But yes, please continue. Well, well, this is the thing. Yeah, watching it, you think, oh, God, is it a three-hour play about banking? And no, not really. It's a three-hour play about this family and these brothers and the way that their fortunes kind of wax and wane and the way that fathers challenge their sons and sons challenge their fathers and brothers challenge brothers and and I was just so engrossed by it you wouldn't have thought that it would be compelling watching three guys talk because it is it is a talking play they're all just monologuing and all the characters are played by these three men and it's told just yeah in kind of the style of like an, an oral history really it's not kind of like characters acting in scenes the way that we think of normal theatre I guess no I, I I was really really kind of wrapped on the edge of my seat with this you're, you're sitting there thinking oh but what's going to happen with the cotton fields and yeah it's it's really interesting and there's so much kind of controversy around it which I 
wasn't aware of. There's a lot of kind of Jewish writers who've written about it saying that it's anti-Semitic and that the play doesn't put a lot of emphasis on slavery, which I think is a really interesting criticisms. And having now seen the play, I was very kind of like, oh, I understand these criticisms more. And um, yeah, I think it's just a really enjoyable three hours of your life, really compelling and a real kind of testament to what theatre can be as well. I was very impressed and it cost me 25 quid for a seat in the stalls and I was well happy with that. Uh, Yeah, just great performance, really amazing set design and direction. And if Sam Mendes would stick to theatre, I think we'd all be a happier nation because it's clearly what he is good at. I think it's, yeah, wonderful revival. Highly recommend it. I'm so glad they managed to convince you to go because, I mean, it's (laughs) such a hard sell. Three hours, Sam Mendes, and it's just three dudes talking about finance. But it's so good. He's so So much more exciting as a theatre director than he is a film director. But yes, Meg, But what what is your non-movie recommendation? Well, it's really fun. It's quite funny that you picked that because it was literally on my list of potential things to to recommend today. Um, I saw the play at the National Theatre when it was on, I guess last year two years ago yeah and I just thought it was brilliant I kind of come from like a theater acting background so I I love a good acting showcase and it really really is that but my recommendation I've decided to go with Yellow Jackets which the second season is coming out this week if you haven't seen the first season I would definitely recommend watching all of it getting ready for season two it is such a brilliant show. I really, yeah, as someone who's not typically like a horror person, maybe I am. (laughs) And I just don't know it because a lot of people I've told about this get really, you know, squirmish about the idea of cannibalism in the woods. Oh my God. But uh, it's, it's really... As much it is as it is about that, it's about female relationships, female friendships, growing up. It's this sort of coming of age story. And it's so brilliantly told in terms of using multiple timelines and revealing just enough to keep the audience completely hooked. I, I'm a huge fan and I'm really excited for season two. Oh my God, I'm such a huge fan too. Oh, I absolutely love that show. And I've got to say, I've, I've torn through my screeners. The final 10 minutes of episode two might be my favorite bit of television so far this year. So yes, another amazing recommendation. We really have not cast Christina Ricci as a psychopath enough, which is bizarre given her origin (laughs) as Wednesday. She hasn't had enough villainous roles and she's so good in this one as Misty. So if you've got thoughts on these films or want to tell us about your wonderful time watching the Lehman trilogy and season two of Yellow Jackets, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, we'll be reviewing Riotsville, USA and Blind Willow Sleeping Woman. And for Film Club, it's Tran and Hun's Norwegian Wood. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Litty. And my guests this week were Hannah Strong and Megan Walters. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. 
This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win.